0: Morning everybody. For um, those who I haven't met already, my name is Callum Murray. I'm one of the partners in the Commercial Technology team at Kemp Little. I'm with my colleagues Chris Middleton from the Employment team and Andrew Joint from the Commercial Technology team. Welcome to our annual data protection update. So moving on to this morning, um, I'm going to spend a little while thinking about some developments over the past year in the, the world of data protection. Um, Chris is then going to focus specifically on uh, the impact of social media. Uh, a huge amount of personal data in there and and how that impacts with um, the workplace in an HR context. We're then going to pull together some of the themes that we've we've called out in those sessions in a case study that Andrew will introduce, let you run out of the room for 10-15 minutes to have a coffee and recover from that, and then hopefully you'll come back and give us the answers uh, to the things that have come up in the case study, Um, and if not, we'll maybe give you some answers. Moving on then to some developments in data protection in the past year. As ever, uh, it's not a hard thing to pull together an update for data protection because there seems to be something happening, certainly on a monthly basis, almost on a weekly basis. We've seen a number of of changes in the past year. Uh, We've seen a movement around the use of passenger name records and financial messaging data uh, in anti-terrorism contexts. We've seen uh, the bill get royal assent, which is going to get rid of the ID card set up in the UK um, and thereby killing golden goose for some lawyers. Um, We've seen movement on crime mapping data and some guidance from the ICO on how that should be used. We've seen a seemingly never-endless flow of opinions from the Article 29 Working Party on a number of uh, data protection issues. And behind all of this, we're still in the midst of the the, the ongoing review of the Data Protection Directive, um, which we are promised to get some new draft law on during the course of this year. So um, as I say, a, b- a big series of changes are ongoing, but those are all relatively sector-specific other than the last, and it's a bit of a watch this space. So I thought I'd pick up on three things where we have seen some concrete change this year and have a think about what they might mean uh, for you in practice uh, as in-house council. International transfers, we've seen a variation to what we have. Um, there's a big issue online for any of you who've got websites around uh, use of cookies and how that'll work and as probably everyone's aware the ICO got some new enforcement powers in the past year I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about how those have been used and if there's any kind of rationale or precedent that we can take from that. So starting with uh, international transfers of data as everybody's probably aware Under the 8th principle of the Data Protection Act, which in turn mirrors the the directive, um, data controllers shouldn't be shipping personal data outside of the EEA unless they can ensure an adequate level of protection for that data. Um, This is something that we've had as long as we've had the Act. So it's not new in itself, but it's something that's only growing in importance uh, as business patterns continue to evolve. It's always had an impact in outsourcing. As database aggregation increases, it has a further impact there. And as cloud services are becoming more prevalent, this is the key sort of DP point that's rising back up to the top. (coughs) As with all data protection, it's on the data controllers to ensure compliance. But I think it's worth revisiting briefly how adequate levels of protection can be ensured from a data controller's perspective. Firstly, um, it's open to data controllers to uh, find their own levels of adequacy. Kind of bold DIY move if you want. Make your own assessment, think it's all right and carry on. Uh, some people might want to do that. I suspect the other three uh, levels of adequacy are probably a little bit more comforting. Um, the Commission's obviously set out um, its own findings of adequacy and, and those cover naturally the 29 EU countries. Um, they also extend as of recently to eight other countries. Israel has now joined the list of uh, countries where uh, or countries which are regarded as providing adequate protection and there's the sporadic kind of adequacy um, that the Commission will find uh, things like safe harbor um, where if a country uh, sorry, a company in the US a corporation signs up to safe harbor principles then they are re- regarded as providing adequate protection <laughs> alongside these commission findings um, there are certain exemptions from the need to find adequacy um, particularly if you have the consent of the data subject to transferring the information out that's um, I think one that's often relied on. The other exemptions tend to be rather specific. Um, People try to push things under uh, the transfer being necessary for a contractual requirement but it's a bit of a force. Um, That works in a situation, for example, if you're booking an airline with an overseas um, carrier and you have to pass your information out, it's a little bit harder where the transfer is being done by the data controller for its purposes rather than the customer's purposes. So we tend to kind of default down to, to the last situation of creating adequacy. Um, under the directive, it's, it's clear that you can create adequacy contractually using appropriate contractual clauses. Now, in practice, this boils down to two sets of um, approaches. Firstly, we have um, what are known as approved binding corporate rules, and this this relates more to sort of transfers within group. Um, where you are part of a multinational organisation and you want to quiz personal data around um, all the companies in your group uh, you come up with a set of principles, you take those to your local regulator, they are approved and then all your companies pledge allegiance to the flag of those rules um, this tends to be an approach that favoured by bigger multinationals only primarily because of the cost and effort I think that's involved <coughs> Excuse me. and given that we've had um, Seven of these approved across Europe in the five years that we've been able to. It's a pretty good indication of, of how popular that is um, and how likely it is that most organisations will take that route. So most then drop back to the kind of model contract clauses approach. And again, for several years now we've we've had model clauses available for a number of situations. This year we've had a new set of model clauses introduced and they apply in situations situation where a data controller pushes information out of the EEA to a data processor and that processor in turn wants to use an an organisation underneath it as a subcontractor. For the first time we're we're looking at capturing that sub-processing in the contractual arrangements and making sure that everybody who touches the personal data in that chain of processing has contractual obligations which are enforceable as we'll see at at all levels. and that's kind of situation where a, a data importer wants to contract with a subprocessor. Under the new model clauses, they they can only do so with the prior written consent of the exporter. Um, and in addition, uh, they're required to give the exporter a copy of the contract they have with the subprocessor. So now we have a, a sort of situation where, as a data exporter, you're doing, on one level, an additional layer of due diligence into where the information is going and who's handling it, but at the same time, reciprocally, you get an additional layer of comfort because you know that as far down as the sub-processing goes, there will be a contractual structure where you can enforce your rights against all parties touching the information. The content of those uh, agreements between importers and sub-processors is also predefined in the, in the model clauses Um perhaps obviously but the agreements now have to be in writing that there's an, a necessity for formality so that you can share this um, it's important that the subprocessor is under the same obligations as a minimum as the importer um, interestingly uh, the, the provisions of the data exporters place of establishment around data protection have to be part of the requirements on the subprocessor so you're putting your requirements as a controller down onto the subprocessor, as you would have done to a processor before. And also, obviously all of this is about protecting data subjects. So the data subjects now have rights all down the chain of people who are touching their information. So you end up with this kind of waterfall of rights and obligations. Um, at each stage, if you like, everybody can beat up the person beneath them, and at each stage the person beneath has obligations to the person above. Now, the introduction of these model clauses doesn't do away with the old controller to processor clauses, they're still there, they're still fine, you can still use them, Um, but as of May this year, if you are entering a situation where there are sub-processors, you should be using the new clauses, and if you're in a current situation where you are aware that there's going to be a change to use a sub-processor, even if you have the current model clauses in place, you'd be best advised to swap round to the new sub-processor clauses. So, hello. Uh, do you mind if I take them at the end? Thanks. Um, thinking then on moving from international to, I guess, things that are of concern to those who operate websites, uh, I'm not going to give you a lecture on what a cookie is. I suspect everybody's got some understanding. Um, essentially, a small text file dropped on your browser by a website which acts as a kind of placeholder, doesn't do much, but the next time you go past that website, it recognises you've been there. So the big question at the moment is around um, how cookies can be used and what consents are required for cookie use. We've got a range of changes coming into EU law through the Telecoms Directive and almost as a bit of a backdoor through that directive, um, we have the e-Privacy Directive changing. Uh, The language in blue calling out now that you can only be using cookies where the individual has given their consent having been provided with clear and comprehensive information. This is a real switch from the current situation where essentially you can use cookies if you tell people you're going to use them and let them opt out. What's now apparently being required is you have to tell people that you're using them and they have to opt in. I'm sure any of you have a website will have a privacy policy in there, there'll be the cookie section. This is exactly where this impacts so that kind of seems clear if um, not terribly helpful but there is a limited exemption to that uh, you are allowed to use cookies if they're strictly necessary to provide the service that the users have explicitly sought okay that's uh, you know helpful to some extent but doesn't seem to provide much flexibility um, and we'll come back in a moment to the difficulties of what is or isn't strictly necessary But then clouding the whole situation, we have in the recital to the telecoms directive the commentary that consent can be expressed using the appropriate settings of a browser or other application. Now, whilst recitals at law are supposed to provide guidance on what's in an article, the article's supposed to trump a recital. So quite how this should be interpreted isn't terribly clear. On the one view, we have to have an express consent, and on the other... That consent can be expressed possibly through a browser. What impact does this have on parties who are operating websites? Well, what can you rely on as a website operator for something being strictly necessary and also, if you like, explicitly requested by your users? I think if you think about password entry, that seems sensible. It's obvious that you want to be able to keep that. Maybe individual setup, people wanting their websites uh, in to se- take your content a certain way. Again, they've requested that. That seems reasonable. But as a, a website operator, if you start getting into thinking about things like analytics that you're running across the site or um, optimization that you're doing to make your site better, have they been explicitly requested by the user? Are they strictly necessary to provide the service? Gray area. When you come down a level again to things like advertising, particular behavioural advertising, um, where the cookies are used as a means of, as I say, checking where you've been, perhaps dropping you something that's of relevance to where you've been, really starts to become a stretch to think about that being something that's either strictly necessary or explicitly requested by the user. So if it's not strictly necessary, it requires consent. How do you get it? Well, I mentioned advertising specifically because this is, if you like, where the, the battle is being fought most publicly. Um, (coughs) On the one side, you've got the the IAB and the advertising industry very much standing on Recital 66, saying browsers are fine. Um, You can use browser settings. That's great. At the same time, uh, this debate's happening internationally. So you have Firefox browser introducing a Do Not Track functionality. You've got Google Chrome coming up with their Keep My Opt-outs. And Microsoft have announced that in the IE9 browser, they'll also have functionality that allows this. It's interesting that the language of those options and settings is very much about, uh, I think Google's captures it well, keep my opt-outs rather than recognize my opt-ins. That's partly because of the approach that's been taken in the States to this issue by the Federal Trade Commission. Um, But browser settings are now being updated so that there is this kind of capability in a more readily accessible way uh... to manage what is and isn't <coughs> being tracked great maybe on the other side of the debate we find the article twenty nine working party I, I mentioned them I should have said who they are sorry this is the information commissioners from around europe who get together and issue opinions on um, anything and everything as i say in the, in the realms of data protection on this specific issue they've been very clear that this has to be in their view a positive opt-in they don't believe that um, browsers provide opportunity to provide that positive opt-in and then they caveat that by saying even if they do, um, that's likely to be a one-time consent so you should have to give it every time you go on using your browser to look at websites. Sounds slightly uh, unrealistic. Perhaps an interesting debate and in one view slightly academic you might think well yes and no. The nervousness is that all of this has to be lost by me that being the case, what are we going to get in the UK? Well, the government issued its consultation between September and December of last year, and they set out the approach that they were thinking about taking on this point. They said there, um, we'll be copying out the relevant wording of the article. Fine. Uh, So we're getting the law as is. I think that we need to look behind that to see why they were saying that. Um, The government's currently being sued at a European level for not introducing the last e-privacy directive properly so they're not really going to see much else other than this. At the same time however they've given some flexibility by saying that Recital 66 is useful. Great, so we start to get towards a middle road. Are they future proofing it by saying that they don't want to see what's strictly necessary? To some extent yes, I think that's helpful and also sensible. Then we move on to them saying that we'll leave the ICO as regulator to give guidance on how this should be um, interpreted. And lastly, we're really behind self-regulation in industry. So bodies like the IAB and their best practice will start to have a greater weight. So if you boil all this down, what I think we end up is we're going to have a law stated on its face, but regulator guidance from the ICO on how it's to be interpreted and industry self-regulation beneath that with enforcement in the background perhaps from somebody like the OFT um, I say maybe and probably we had the consultation, it finished now six, eight weeks ago and we still not had anything on it given the laws coming in in May times are getting tight okay, um, the third thing I mentioned I wanted to have a quick look at was the new enforcement powers that the Information Commissioner got this year um, there was a lot of press when these came out, so I'm sure you probably got some understanding of the background. Essentially, the Commissioner now has a new weapon in his arsenal, civil financial penalties, as of April last year, um, up to £500,000. There's a lot of debate at the time that these were first introduced um, as to whether or not that's enough. They're noticeably smaller than other regulators. Um, how they operate is set out in an order, and both the order and the... Uh, be introducing legislation are captured in some URLs that are in the slide deck if you want to have a read of them. As of last week, um, with a hasty rewrite of slides, we now have four fines having been issued in the UK. So let's have a look at what they were issued for. Hertfordshire County Council um, were the, one of the first two parties to be uh, fined. Hertfordshire sent a fax containing details of a uh, child sex abuse case they thought to the chambers of the barristers who were helping them. Um, they in the auto dial in their fax machine when barristers' chambers were full then sent it to somebody else. Um, that somebody else said it was the second time they received that information. It wasn't a good start. The commissioner went to investigate this, and on the day the commissioner's staff were in Hertfordshire, the same thing happened again. This time, respect of care proceedings. At least this time, the papers went to chambers you just went to the wrong chambers because the autodial picked up the chambers from the child sex abuse case. They were given a fine of 100,000 pounds and undertook to make remedial uh, measures. A4 employment services had details of 24,000 people who'd accessed community legal services in the Hull and Leicester area. Those were an unencrypted laptop that was stolen from somebody's house. Um, 60,000 pound fine and remedial measures to the equipment. Ealing and Hounslow operated an out-of-hours support service. Um, We don't know what for because in the notice, the penalty notice it's all redacted. But one gets a sense it was for um, members of the community who need more support than others. Um, Again, two laptops this time were stolen from somebody's house. They were unencrypted and the fines are set out there. What's interesting at the same time, I think, is to look at in the same period who wasn't fined what activities were not worthy of a fine. West Berkshire lost a USB stick with sensitive personal data of children on um, it. All that's required is a signed undertaking around equipment, training and, and encryption. Kent police had confidential documents stolen from the boot of a car. NHS trusts literally one a month. There's not a form of transport that the NHS haven't left personal information on in the past six months. Um, there's a train in Hertfordshire, another train in Lampeter. There's a tube, a bus. There's a further train somewhere else. All undertakings given to sort stuff out. ACS Law. Some of the lawyers may remember the name. Um, where essentially chasing people they alleged were pirates, um, downloading content illegally, as opposed to eye patch and Cutlass. Um, they, they were hacked and lots of personal information was taken from their systems um, the commissioners had to look into them, uh, they've since folded so I don't suppose that will go much further on that front um, but again no, no sort of fine or no fining action taken and lastly Google, um, I'm sure everyone will have read about Google's Street View cars collecting information um, including URLs, emails and passwords inadvertently um, And again, very publicly, Google cooperated with the information commissioner and ended up agreeing to being um, audited by the commissioner and to give an undertaking to improve its data handling. But I don't know if it's possible to sort of start to think about precedent from these. Um, Personally, if I'm honest, I found it a bit of a struggle. The easy place to start, I guess, is that in three of the places where fines came out, laptops were stolen and those laptops were unencrypted. So there's... There's a kind of commonality there about not protecting the personal data properly. Um, The laptops were password-led only, a couple of them had the decode keys to other information on the same laptop, and again there were complaints about uh, the councils having policies but there being very little implementation of the policies, so write it up, stick it in a drawer. Um, In the cases again where there were fines, the the information was very sensitive. Child sex abuse cases naturally being top of that, um, but again, you know, in each of them, um, in the A4E case, the people who sought um, legal services included victims of domestic violence, lists of offenders, wh- what you would regard as you know proper sensitive information, which, if it came out, would cause substantial damage or distress. So you know, maybe that's another theme here. Um, you might think that some of the stuff that Google were collecting maybe falls into a similar pot very hazy line. Um, Common theme again that they're all public sector things, well three were and one wasn't but the fourth was acting in a kind of quasi-public sector capacity with the public sector. I think that's probably fair and I I think that's maybe a bigger thing here which is um, since the child support agency lost again hugely publicly hundreds of thousands or certainly tens of thousands of records there's been an informal requirement in all public sector bodies to notify the Commissioner each time they have a data breach uh, there's not that same requirement under law on private sector companies. You don't have to tell. Um, following the telecoms directive that I mentioned coming uh, into law shortly, there will be a requirement on telcos, but not anyone else. At the time that was debated, there was a real argument about whether it should be across all private sector organisations. It didn't go this time, but the Commissioner is very keen on that. and Let's kind of watch this space, I would expect to see requirements coming into law that all organisations have to give notification of breaches, but we're not there. So maybe we're more likely to see fines in the public sector. Can you take anything from the size of the fines? I guess so. To some extent, if you look at the numbers of parties involved, there does seem to be a kind of grading of who gets fined for what. And to fair to the Commissioner, this does sort of follow the guidance that we'd set out before actually starting fining. The things that they would look at Uh, The nature of the act and the intention of the parties. So in the the act itself, is it serious, i.e. how big is it? How many folk involved? How long did it last? What kind of personal data was involved? And again, the the nature of the damage that's likely to flow from that. And then secondly, the intention of the the data controller at the time. So either deliberately contravening the DPA, um, not really caring, or uh, interestingly, objectively, you, you ought to have known of the risk of contravention but didn't do anything to stop it happening. So you were reckless. Um, I, I, I think those elements have been there in the fines that have been levied. Um, and of course, as they're civil fines, uh, they're, they're judged on a balance of probabilities sort of level. So the commissioner, I guess, has followed the guidance that he set out. I, I guess my concern or my question is, um, has, has he followed it strongly as we expected? Um, if we come back to the guidance and the, the finding themselves, Monetary penalties were intended to be a sanction and also a deterrent to prevent non-compliance in similar situations. That's really quite a strong statement. I think the reality may not match up to it. The powers have been used rarely, four times since they've come in. Um, they're only going to be used for the most serious breaches. Uh, you know, again, Google versus Google. Um, a4E, how serious a breach is a serious breach. Um, they will be used where there's not remedial action taken. Um, I think we've seen that particularly in Hertfordshire where they were told about the facts issue and then as I say unbelievably did the same thing again when the commissioners staff were in their office. The fines do have a low maximum. You know, Does this really um, inspire sanction deterrence? I'll leave that for you to judge. And uh, even then, fines are actually means tested. Uh, They're not intended to be, they are intended to be a sanction and a deterrent, but they're not intended to be punitive to the organisation, even up to a standard of half a million pounds. And lastly, you get an early payment discount of 20% if you pay within 28 days. Maybe again, slightly undercutting the deterrence and sanction element. All of which, I guess, kind of leaves me thinking that maybe... If you're not a regulated business, you know perhaps if you're not under the, the regime of the FSA, it's damage to reputation and costs of remedial action that's the real sanction deterrence here. Um, this may change. If we look at the FSA very briefly, last year the FSA, by comparison to the Commissioner's £310,000 of fines, fined £88 million, uh, they fined £10 million in the week before Christmas. I don't know if that was to cover Christmas parties or what. Um, In the same period when they're fining uh, $88 the Commissioner very publicly stated they've had to deal with 30% more complaints about personal data handling, and they'll have to think about their case handling methods. I wonder if there's more of a place for thinking about where the money goes from the fines. At the moment, the fines that the Commissioner levies go to central government. Maybe if those fines drop back to the Commissioner and let him staff up, they might be more of a sanction and a deterrent as they were used more regularly. I'm not hoping for that, but I wonder if that's the way we'll go. On that less than cheery note, I'll pause and I'll pass you on to Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Callum. Um,
1: good morning, everyone. It's probably fair to say that, unlike in sort of the general data protection sphere, there's been less sort of pure legal development in, sort of in the context of HR data protection. So what I thought it would be... Um, interesting to have a look at is um, a sort of a a trend um, in the data world that um, courts and employers are are starting to grapple with but but to be honest are a little bit behind um, the reality and that trend is the increasing use of social media um, by employees. When we say increasing use, how widespread is is the use of social media? Well, some statistics on the slide, Um, the first one from a survey by my job group, social networking costs organisations about £14 billion a year in lost work time. Um, Then another survey by the CVI found that employees spend 95 minutes a week surfing the internet on average, um, which sounded like quite a conservative figure to me. Uh, Despite this, whilst 54% of organisations restrict internet access, uh, 25% put no limits on access at all. 32% of organisations have dismissed or disciplined employees for internet misuse. And 41% of employers and recruiters are using um, online data as part of their recruitment process. And all of those issues um, start to raise data protection uh, considerations. Um, there are a whole host of things we could be talking about. Um, I've picked out four, um, and we might have to skip over them a little bit um, because of time, but the four I've picked out are the circumstances in which an organisation might be liable for what its employees do online, um, the fact that you might want to take action against your employees for their use of social media, an issue around pon- posting confidential information to social media, and in particular I'm thinking about employees going on LinkedIn and linking up with um, their contacts and what happens when they move on to another organisation, which I think is going to be a really live issue. And lastly, use of online um, information for recruitment purposes. So firstly, liability for what um, employees do. How is this going to arise? Um, two ways. Firstly, employers can be vicariously liable for what um, in employees do if it's a discriminatory act. Um, anything that employees do Um, in the workplace during the course of employment an employer can be liable for. And actually that phrase has been interpreted pretty widely to extend even to acts outside the workplace. Um, So the case I've I've mentioned there, Chief Constable Lincolnshire Police against Stubbs involved an employee who was sexually harassed um, at the pub at after work drinks and she was able to bring a claim against her employer because of that. There is a defence to an employer available to an employer if they can say they took reasonably practicable steps to prevent the harassment, um, but it is um, quite narrowly drawn in practice and quite hard to rely on. The second way in which an employer can be liable um, for these kind of acts, um, for an employee's acts, is in the, the bullying context. The Madrowski case arises out um, of the Protection from Harassment Act which was brought into force in 1997. Um, the Act was brought into force to deal with stalking cases, but Uh, clever uh, employment lawyers have managed to import it into the employment law context. Um, And this particular case involved an employee who was bullied by his manager um, and was able to bring a claim under this this Act um, and the House of Lords said you can bring a claim against um, the organisation, the the NHS Trust is vicariously liable for your manager's Act. That's all very nice you're thinking, how does that apply to social media? Well, the short answer is it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to foresee situations where employees are putting inappropriate posts on Facebook about um, a colleague, either something that's discriminatory or some form of bullying of a colleague on Facebook or Twitter and um, the organisation will be vicariously liable. What's the solution? Um, Well, some organisations will go for a complete ban um, on accessing social media sites from work. Um, My experience is a lot of organisations will consider that to be a little bit um, draconian uh, and also it's sometimes um, in the organisation's interest to have employees access social media. Um, Here at Chemlittle we have people uh, tweeting um, regularly for example Um, and it may not even provide you with a complete defence because you can foresee a claim where um, someone has accessed Facebook away from the workplace But if it's uh, bullying of an employee and the only reason these two individuals have any kind of connection is through their employment, you could potentially, the employer could still be liable if it's done nothing to to prevent that. So what most organisations will do is have a a partial restriction, saying you can only access certain sites at uh, certain times, and guidelines on acceptable use, covering things like um, not disparaging customers and suppliers and employees, how often you can access social media sites and when, the non-disclosure of confidential information, um, and saying you can't speak on behalf of the employer unless um, authorised to do so. And the other thing to make sure is that your equal opportunities policy um, covers social media. And having those policies in place will help with the um, vicarious liability defence if there is a a claim that an employee has acted inappropriately. Assuming, despite all that, your employees are um, using social media inappropriately, can you take action against them? Um, In principle, yes, you can take disciplinary or dismissal action against the employee, Um, but I guess the overarching themes that come out of the the little bit of case law we've got so far are one, proportionality, um, and secondly, the need for clear um, guidelines. The first case I've mentioned um, on the screen is an illustration of, of the second of those points, the need for clear guidance. Um, these two employees um, were accessing the internet at work, um, looking at sort of fairly innocuous sites like Boots and EasyJet, yes, apparently. Um, they were dismissed for their internet use, and the employer said, We've got a policy which says you can only access the internet outside core working hours. The two of them brought unfair dismissal claims, and the employment tribunal found that the dismissal was unfair. Um, and they said, you've got this policy that says outside core working hours, but the employees gave evidence that they didn't have any work to do at the relevant time, and therefore the tribunal said the policy wasn't wasn't clear enough. Um, and I suspect the tribunal was also influenced by the fact that these people had been working for over 30 years for the same employer. It was their first offence, and as I said, the, the sites were relatively innocuous. Uh, what about if... Um, you can say, well, there's damage to the employer's reputation, which was the issue in the, in the Taylor against Summerfield case. Um, that case involved two employees of Summerfield having a, having a carrier bag fight, um, which was videoed by one of the employees, um, who Mr. Taylor, our hero, who put it onto YouTube, um, and when the employer found out about that, he was dismissed, and they said this is going to be bad for Summerfield's reputation that this is on YouTube he also brought an unfair dismissal claim and he also was successful Um, and the tribunal was influenced by the fact that the video had only been um, watched eight times on YouTube um, and three of those times had been managed at at Summerfield Um, and it was taken down after three days Um, and the tribunal said realistically there's not going to be any significant damage to Summerfield by this only being accessed this, this small number of times. So I guess that case is a reminder of the need for proportionality um, it was it was excessive to dismiss the employee in that case. And then the last thing to think about is if you're dismissing an employee or disciplining them for something you find on social media, um, is it really something that's more a matter to do with their private life rather than their work life? Um, Pay against the United Kingdom looked at this issue um, outside the context of social media. Um, Mr. Pay um, engaged in sadomasochistic masochistic activities. Um, His day job was working with um, sex offenders for the probation board. Um, When they found out about his hobby, he was dismissed. Um, He didn't like that very much and brought um, an unfair dismissal claim. Um, And he alleged that his right to a private life under Article 8 of the European Convention had been infringed. The case went right the way up to the European Court of Human Rights and in this particular case they said on balance, the infringement was justified because of his particular job working with, with sex offenders. Um, but they acknowledge that in a different set of circumstances, it would have been unfair to have dismissed him. Um, so, the clear message from the case is um, you need to be thinking about actually um, whether the action you'll take against someone is more a concern to do with their, their private life and not a legitimate interest for the employer. Um, it's interesting to note that um, countries around the world are, are sort of grappling with this issue at the moment. I mentioned the National Labour Relations um, Board there which is a a body in the United States which has intervened in a case um, where an employee was dismissed for criticising his boss on Facebook um, and the NLRB has said that infringes his right to free speech I also read about a case recently in Australia um, where a trade union has intervened because an employer's Facebook rules um, were, were alleged to be too restrictive and those rules said that not only can you not criticise your employer on Facebook, which is fair enough, but if any of your Facebook friends criticises the, the employer, you're supposed to, to defriend them on, on Facebook. So that's an ongoing issue um, in Australia. Um, I just mentioned very briefly, if you're going to take action against employees, it's probably going to involve um, monitoring them, monitoring their internet usage for example, um, and therefore you're going to need to com- comply with the information commissioners. Uh, concise 91-page guidance on monitoring, um, and i put sort of some of the considerations on the slide, which I'll, I'll probably skip over now um, because of timing. But if you want to discuss that, um, let me know. The reason why it's uh, important to comply with guidance on monitoring is otherwise the evidence you uncover might be inadmissible, or you might get a, a damages claim for an employee from an employee under the Data Protection Act, or it could provide the basis for a constructive dismissal claim. So it's important to have a policy on monitoring and again this concept of proportionality the monitoring you you do should be proportionate to the perceived uh, risk the next area which i think potentially is going to be sort of the most interesting and the most challenging for organizations is is employees uh, putting information on confidential information on social media um, in particular i'm thinking of a site like linkedin where an employee, an employee will go onto LinkedIn, <coughs> link up with all their contacts. What happens when the employee leaves to go to another organisation? Um, can they take take those contacts with them? Uh, the default position, uh, common law position, is that confidential information is protected during employment, but only the more limited category of trade secrets are protected afterwards. Um, most employment contracts will have uh, confidentiality provisions in as well. How does that apply to the sort of the LinkedIn situation um, there's sort of relatively little case law in this issue at the moment what there is, is is reasonably encouraging but I don't think it grapples with the, the sort of the core issue quite yet um, the first case Hayes against irons um, suggests that if an employee puts confidential information onto LinkedIn without the employer's consent that's going to breach their confidentiality um, obligations that case um, in, uh, involved an employee who, who put his contacts up on LinkedIn without the employer's um, consent. It, it only got as far as an interim hearing but the um, report of the interim hearing suggested that it was probably a breach of the employee's confidentiality obligations because it was done without the employer's consent. And then the Penwell publishing case is a reminder that um, if an employee can pass their own list of contacts and this involved a journalist who put together a list of contacts and does it on the employer's systems which this individual dad did, it still belongs to the employer so the journalist couldn't take the, the contacts with him when he moved on to a new organisation um, so those cases are, are quite helpful but what they don't deal with is the core issue I think where um, an employee is allowed to go onto LinkedIn and sign up with their contacts with the employer's express consent and then wants to move on and make contacts with those contacts himself when he goes to his new organization. All those contacts get in touch with him um, when he's moved to their new organization. Um, In principle, um, the employer ought to be able to protect itself with appropriate confidentiality wording, Um, but I think the impact of LinkedIn as I see it is it's going to become a lot more important to have um, non-solicitation of clients, non-dealing of clients, and potentially employees as well um, clauses in employment contracts. Um, it, it's something that it's, it's accepted by the courts. You can have those types of clauses and enforce them. But typically, at the moment, they're done for most the most senior people, directors, senior managers, senior salespeople. Um, I think with the use of LinkedIn, where you're seeing more junior people going onto LinkedIn and making contact with with clients, etc., those types of clauses are probably going to have to be more widely used. Um, as I say, there's not a lot of case law on it yet, but I'm sure, the, I'm sure there will be um, at some point. The last thing I want to talk about very quickly is just the use of social media for recruitment purposes. Um, I've already flagged up this stat that 41% of recruiters and employers have rejected candidates based on information found online. Um, interestingly, 80% of recruiters had concerns about the information and the accuracy of the information they find online, but only 68% um, said so that they took steps to check it. Um, The reasons for rejecting candidates included inappropriate things written by them, dodgy videos and photographs, concerns about their lifestyle and comments criticising their previous employers. Why is this a concern? Well, I suppose two things, Um, firstly data protection issues, pure data protection issues, if you look at information online it's going to um, form um, a, a type of data processing and therefore you need to comply with the Data Protection Act. The Information Commissioner has produced more concise guidance on this subject as well. Um, I've extracted what I see as the sort of the main points from his guidance. And um, firstly, that applicants should know what information you're um, collecting about them in the recruitment context. If you collect information covertly, it's unlikely to be justified. You shouldn't collect more uh, personal information than you need for the recruitment process. And if you collect irrelevant information or excessive information it's likely to be a breach of the data protection rules Um, and it doesn't require a huge imagination to to foresee that doing a bit of snooping on on social media is potentially going to breach those those guidelines because the employees aren't going to know, you're going to pick up all sorts of information, some of which is probably going to be um, irrelevant to the requirements of the job. And if an employee can show that there has been a breach of the data protection requirements they can bring a claim Um, if they can show the financial loss under Section 13 of the Act. So if they say, you looked on Facebook, you formed an inaccurate judgment of me and rejected me, um, when actually I was the best qualified candidate for the job, um, potentially they're going to be able to bring a damages claim. The second thing is back to this issue of discrimination. Um, And in this context it's, it's worth mentioning two things. Firstly, the burden of proof to disprove discrimination will often be on the employer, so rather than the the burden of proof being on the employee. If there are facts from which a tribunal could could conclude that discrimination has occurred, then the obligation becomes on the employer to disprove it. So again, you can see a situation where an employee says, actually, I was the best candidate for the job. Um, The only obvious explanation for you rejecting me is because of something you found out about my religious beliefs um, on Facebook or wherever else it might be. Um, and the second thing to say is discrimination covers a very wide range of characteristics. Um, I've set them out on the screen. Um, there is, there's an awful lot of forms of discrimination which are, are covered now. And those types of discrimination are pretty widely interpreted. Um, so disability doesn't mean what perhaps people historically might have thought of as disability. It covers a whole range of conditions including fairly low level um, mental health problems will be will be. Uh, protected by disability discrimination. Religional belief, again, that covers a very wide range of characteristics. There was a relatively recent case where someone's belief in climate change um, was found to be protected by the religional Belief um, provisions, um, and he was able to bring a claim after his dismissal because of that. Um, so again, you can see, as I say, a situation where someone says, you reject me because of my particular beliefs or my history of mental health problems or something like that, which has been found out from social media. What's the answer to that? Well, I would say actually be extremely cautious about using social media for recruitment purposes because the information is inaccurate and incomplete and anecdotal a lot of the time. Or at the very least, limit your inquiries to specific sites. um, Just shortlist the candidates particular um, types of information you're looking at. Let candidates know you're doing it in generic terms is a good idea and give them an opportunity to respond if you have um, something that's of interest so they have an opportunity to correct um, the information that you uncover. Um, and lastly, um, as I've said, it's not very exciting, um, but a lot of these risks can be managed by getting your, um, your policy ducks in a row, if you can visualize such a thing. Um, making sure you've got a social media policy, which I've um, talked about, email and communications policy, um, which talks about appropriate use of email, confidential information policy, which covers social media, disciplinary policy referring to these types of issues, monitoring and equal opportunities policies. Again, I've, I've talked about those. That's it for me. I'm just